I, uh, so the, uh, the sermon series is uh, a letter to the exiles, and the title of the sermon is Pressing Into Our Salvation. Uh, I don't think that I have ever checked my mailbox uh, two days in a row. Uh, I've never really seen the point. Uh, I've been doing this for nearly a decade, and I've yet to encounter a problem. I started this whenever I had a job and I was traveling. I would leave on Tuesday and return on Friday. So I only checked it on Mondays and Fridays, and there was no problem. Why? Because there was nothing that important coming in my mailbox. Usually I would just get coupons to stores that I never shopped at, maybe an advertisement for services that I don't need. And yesterday I decided I was going to check my mailbox to see if this proved true. And sure enough, I got uh, a discount for tree removal service, but I live in a condo, so that was useless. I got uh, Clipper Magazine, and I have no idea what Clipper Magazine is, but my son tore it apart. Uh, There was an NGO asking for money, and I think there was a special credit card offer that we declined. Yeah, sure, so every once in a while you'll get something cool like a birthday card or maybe a postcard. We got the postcards from Hong Kong. And I actually love getting cards, so please feel free to write me a card. I enjoy getting them. But any joy that we get out of a postcard or a birthday card is probably destroyed by something like a letter from the IRS or another tax bill from the Ridgefield Tax Office or an insurance premium that is due and we completely forgot about it. But imagine opening your mailbox and finding a letter that some would come to call the greatest letter of all time. And for the next 2,000 years, people would study this letter. They would gather to talk about and try to understand this letter, and they would even write books about it. Maybe if I could get a letter like that, I would check my mailbox every day of the week. Well, the letter of 1 Peter has been called the greatest letter that was ever written. The reformer Martin Luther called 1 Peter a paragon of excellence. Modern commentators still marvel at 1 Peter. But modern commentators also struggle to accept that this noble letter was written by a simple fisherman. It's written as if it was written by a great scholar or even a king, not somebody who puts worms on hooks for a living. But Peter's Greek is tough. Whenever I was working through some of the passages, I would check what I had translated with the ESV or the NASB, and then I would just ball up what I had written and thrown away, because it was quite challenging. But even though the language is tough, the message is powerful. So why is 1 Peter such a great letter? Well, there are many different reasons, but I'm just going to give you two this morning. So the first reason that 1 Peter is a great letter is because it focuses on salvation. So go go ahead and open your Bibles uh, and look at the first two verses of 1 Peter. So if you want to use a phone app, that's totally fine. If you want to use the books or the the Bibles in the pew, uh, it's a difficult one to find. It's on page uh, 1014, almost towards the end, page 1014. So this letter is all about salvation. If you take a look at the first two verses, you're going to see at least five terms or image that deal with salvation. Uh, The first one is elect or election. Uh, We see foreknowledge, sanctification, and obedience. Uh, These are all technical terms about salvation. But Peter also gives us some imagery. He talks about being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. 
This is a reference back to the tabernacle and the temple where the priest would sprinkle blood on the sanctified objects that were going into the tabernacle. And there's a scene where Moses takes blood and he sprinkles it on the people to sanctify them. So all of these terms and images, they tell us about salvation. Now, salvation is actually a big umbrella term. It's a a big picture term. So if you picture an umbrella, you have a great big umbrella. But from the umbrella, you have all these different spokes coming out from the center that we hang the material on. So all of these terms are like spokes or little parts of the umbrella. Uh, One of the the images that the ancient church liked to use is they would compare salvation uh, to Noah's Ark. And actually in the third chapter of Peter, I think it's third or fourth chapter of Peter, he compares salvation to Noah's Ark. That whole thing is salvation. But there's many different ways of looking at the Ark. You could look at it from the side, you could look at it head on, you could look at it from the rear, you could look at it from a distance, or you could look at it very closely. And if you look at the Ark very closely, you're going to see different boards and nails and screws and whatever uh, Noah was using to build the Ark. And it's the same with salvation. You can look at it as a whole, but you can get a close-up and you can look at all these different boards and nails and all these different aspects that come together. So Peter talks about things like a new birth or ransom or adoption. All of these are boards that reveal the greater picture of the ark, which is salvation. So the first reason that this letter is so great is because it deals directly with salvation. This is the great doctrine of evangelicals, soteriology or the understanding of salvation. And the second reason that 1 Peter is such a great letter is that it tells Christians how to live in a secular culture or how to live in a non-Christian culture, which makes this extremely relevant for us today. Peter wrote to five churches in different regions. I believe it's verse 1. If you want to take a look, it's the first one is Pontus, Galatia. Then there's Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. Uh, Many of these churches were actually represented at Pentecost. So they would have heard Peter speak the first sermon the church ever had. Uh, We know that Paul went on different missionary experiences to to Galatia. Uh, There's a tradition that says that the apostle Matthias went to Cappadocia. So he's writing to these, uh, these churches that are now in modern-day Turkey. Uh, the the landmass would have been about the size of California, just a little bit smaller. So it's a pretty big region that Peter is addressing. But did you notice how he addresses these churches? He calls them exiles. Uh, that word for exile could be translated as foreigner or stranger. Uh, Whenever I was living in Thailand, it wouldn't be that uncommon for me to walk past a group of local Thai people and then hear the word uh, for foreigner in Thai come up in their conversation, which is farang. So I would walk past them and then I would hear them say something about the farang that just walked by. I'm, I'm assuming they were saying how handsome I was, but I have no idea. In Hong Kong, they're more used to to, to foreigners, but there's still a special word for foreigners uh, called guaylo, and this uh, loosely translated, I believe, is white ghosts. Is that right? So uh, it's just more common, but can you imagine when all these white people got off a a boat hundreds of years ago, they probably looked like ghosts. But these people that Peter is writing to, they are not exiles because of their skin color or because of their long pointy noses, which I didn't know I had until I went to to Asia. He's calling them exiles because these people are 
weirdos. Christians have been, been called weird throughout all of church history. In the early church, people thought that Christians were cannibals because they were always talking about eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood. On top of that, they thought that they were eating babies because if they saw an abandoned child, they would take that child into their home and they know they're eating flesh and drinking blood, so they thought they were eating children. They also thought that Christians practiced incest because they called their spouses brother and sister. Christians have always been strangers and exiles to the culture around them, just like the Israelites were strangers and foreigners in Egypt. They were exiles, and we are exiles. But we are not only exiles, we are elect exiles. The Israelites were foreigners in Egypt, but they were God's elect people. The word for elect can often be translated as chosen which has led to a lot of debates that I'm happy to have outside of uh, uh, the sermon, uh, if you, anybody wants to talk about that. But one of the ways we could translate this word elect is chosen, but we could also translate it as choice. If I say that I had a choice bottle of wine or some choice cheese, what does that mean? It means that I had some excellent wine. I had the supreme cheese that you could find. In the same way, he is calling these people the supreme exiles. They are supreme because they are God's chosen ones. So, 1 Peter is special because it teaches us, who are today's elect exiles, about our salvation. And it teaches us how to press into our salvation. So now, let's look at the rest of this passage and see what does it tell us about salvation. So keep your Bibles open, and we're actually going to do what I call the Oreo cookie method. I've explained this to you before. We're going to start in the middle of the passage. You start, when you eat an Oreo cookie, you eat the cream in the middle, and then you work your way to the cookie on the outside. So go ahead and look at verses 10 and 12. This is going to be our starting point. So the first point, to press into our salvation, we must press into the gospel. Because salvation flows from the gospel. Now, in Greek, these two or three verses are actually one sentence. So verses 10 to 12 are just one sentence. But if you look right in the middle, the end of verse 11, you're going to see what I call a great definition of the gospel. Uh, Several years ago, I started thinking, how can I best define gospel? Uh, And I would look up different YouTube videos, and I would read different articles, and they were convoluted. These videos would take 10 minutes of somebody to explain, and they were all over the place. So I kept searching, how do we boil down, what is the best summary of the gospel? I'm going to give you two words. Humiliation, exaltation. Humiliation and exaltation. Uh, These are themes that run throughout all of Scripture. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. He was humiliated, he was sold into slavery, and he was thrown into prison. But he was also exalted. He became a prince over Egypt and savior of the world. Or think of David. David was a shepherd, which was not a prestigious position, and he spent years hiding in caves running for his life. Humiliation. But David didn't end there, he was exalted. He became a king and had one of the greatest monarch dynasties in the history of the world. Or take Esther. She was an orphan, but she became a queen. 
and also a savior of the Jewish people. But these are only pictures that point us to the true gospel. And the gospel is the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 doesn't use these exact two words, but the idea is there. It talks about the sufferings of Christ, and it talks about his subsequent glories, humiliation and exaltation. But Peter prefaces this definition of the gospel by referring to the prophets. The prophets longed to look into the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah. You see, when they looked at Joseph, they anticipated somebody better than Joseph. And when they looked at King David, they anticipated somebody better than King David. And when they looked at Queen Esther, they anticipated a Messiah that would be even better than Queen Esther. The Messiah would be a savior who defeated not the enemy armies, but defeated death. The Messiah would take away the sins of the world and be a true king, one that was eternal. And the prophets longed to look into this. But it was not only the prophets who anticipated the sufferings and glories of the Messiah. Did you see the end of verse 12? That the angels in heaven longed to look into our salvation. Now when I picture this idea of longing to look into their salvation, I picture a crowd of people hovering around a famous painting. I've been to the Museum of Modern Art a few times, and I still have not been able to see the Starry Night closely. Because it seems like there's a bust of tourists that are just hovering around this picture, longing to look into its beauty. In the same way, the angels are longing, in the Old Testament anyway, are longing to look into the beauty of the gospel. I also picture maybe a TV screen at a sports bar. You know, World Series, Game 7, ninth inning, scores tied, and everybody's eyes are on the TVs. I've never been to an exciting game in the World Series but I have been to a very exciting baseball game, and the year was 1999. It was the Arizona Diamondbacks versus uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, I believe. Uh, a no-name game, it wasn't, wasn't a big deal, uh, but I was there visiting my cousins, and uh, my, my aunt had bought us several tickets, so we went to several games while I was there. Uh, this one particular game, uh, there was the, the, the sixth inning, they made an announcement going into it. Uh, that there was a particular uh, lady, a fan, in the stands that had won a uh, ticket to be there uh, through, I think it was a country music radio station. She called in, knew the name of the song or whatever, got the tickets. And part of the promotion, she could, had a chance to win a million dollars. If she picked a particular player for the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, to hit a grand slam and in a particular inning... So a grand slam rarely happens. It's whenever there's, everybody's on the bases and you get a home run. Picking a player to do that and then picking the specific inning, it's nearly impossible. So they make this announcement at the beginning of the sixth inning and, oh, yeah, okay, cool, great. Well, then as the inning progresses, you know, there's a couple guys on base, there's a couple outs. Well, sure enough, she picked this guy named Jay Bell. I had to look up. I didn't even remember his name. So Jay Bell gets up there. There's two outs and the bases are loaded. So he's, you know, swings a couple, knocks a couple of foul balls off, you know, takes a couple balls. So it's a full count, two outs. The guy that she has picked to hit the grand slam and win a million dollars has the possibility of doing that. Now, at this point in the game, nobody was going to the bathroom. Nobody was going to get a refill for their beer or their Kool-Aid. Nobody cared about anything. They were all looking into this game. They wanted to see what was going to happen. Well, I wouldn't be telling you this story if J. Bill did not, in fact, hit 
a million dollar grand slam. And everyone in the stadium went crazy. Now, in the same way, in the Old Testament, the angels of heaven were longing to look into salvation. They were longing to look into the gospel. But why? Why would angels, who King David says are higher on the pecking order than human beings, why would they care about the redemption of humanity? Don't they have better angelic things to do with their time? Well, we don't spend too much time talking about angels uh, during our sermons in 2022, but I figured I would take uh, a moment. I'm going to give you a theory. Uh, It's not original with me. It's throughout all of church history, and it's the theory that I personally embrace. The author of Hebrews tells us that angels are ministers, that they are ministering spirits that serve humanity. At creation, uh, the theory goes that angels were given the task of serving humanity. That which was greater was called to serve that which was weaker, the greater serving the younger. It was a call to humility. But not all of the angels were excited with this call to humility. Some of the angels chose pride. And these angels rebelled against God and wanted humanity to serve them rather than to be served. Well, the humble angels obeyed. They served humanity even though we had fallen into sin and even though that we were less of a being than they were. However, this all changed at the incarnation. When God became a human being, or the initial humiliation of Christ, these humble and obedient angels were vindicated. By serving humanity, the angels were not serving something that would remain permanently lower than them. They were serving something that was only temporarily lower than them, that could one day be greater than them. This is why St. Paul says that Christians will one day judge the angels. Why? Because when God became a human being at the incarnation, he didn't do this to bring divinity down to our level. No, he did this to take humanity up to his level. So what did the angels do at the incarnation when they were finally vindicated for their labor and their humble sacrifice? Well, they filled the skies and they worshipped. They worshipped louder than the stadium, packed with screaming fans who had just seen a million-dollar grand slam. And their song, Glory to God in the Highest. This is the gospel that we embrace, the sufferings and glory of Christ. And from it flows our salvation. But how do we make this gospel, this salvation, our own? Well, we must press into salvation. We must press into the gospel. And we must continue pressing in to God. Because point two, salvation flows from God. Take a look at verse 3 to verse 9. Now, one of the questions that comes up the most when talking about salvation is what is the relationship between faith and works? Or usually they're wanting to know which one comes first. Does faith precede works or do works precede faith? Well, both are obviously necessary for salvation, but different denominations and different theologians argue for different ordering. Even the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul seem to disagree. But I think to truly understand the relationship between works 
and faith, we have to go a step back. We have to take a step back and we have to look at the ark of salvation from a different perspective. Verse 3 says that God has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is from our new birth that we have faith and that we have works. I believe from our new birth, these things happen simultaneously in two different streams. The big word or the title of a plank that is on this ark of salvation is called regeneration, being born again. In John 3, Jesus has this famous conversation with Nicodemus where he says, you must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus is confused. How do I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says it is a birth of the spirit, a spiritual birth. Another word that we use that's similar is adoption. We're adopted into a new family. But both of these words, regeneration and adoption, both of them point us to an inheritance, which we see in verse 4. This inheritance is not dependent on things like the stock market, the federal interest rate, supply chains, wars, or even pandemics. This inheritance is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. So from our new birth, from regeneration, from adoption, we have hope. And we have faith that allows us to hold on to this inheritance. And as I told you a few months ago, faith is a muscle that must be exercised. This passage shows us that faith is a gift from God through our new birth. And since faith is a gift from God, he can do whatever he wants to with our faith. And this passage tells us that he is calling us to exercise it. He's calling us to purify it. And he purifies it by putting it into a furnace of trials and different tests Sometimes he gives us big trials and big tests. Maybe we have to suffer the loss of a loved one, or we get a diagnosis of cancer, or maybe we have a friend who has betrayed us. All of these big trials enhance our faith and make it more genuine. But he also gives us small trials and small tests, not the loss of a loved one, but the loss of a pet, and not a cancer diagnosis, but the sniffles and the flu. And not an unfaithful friend, but the loss of a first love. All of these trials and tribulations, they make our faith genuine. And that's what God wants. He wants genuine faith. Faith that continues to hope him regardless of our situations, whether it's the breakup, the bad news, or even the loss of a loved one. Even in the most difficult times, Genuine faith knows how to hold on to God and his promises. And God loves this genuine faith. Did you notice the result of this faith in the passage? Take a look at verses 6 and 7. It's actually, for once, it's more clear in the Greek than it is in the English. It says that those with genuine faith will receive praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At times, we will be praising Jesus and bestowing honor upon him, like in a worship service setting, but that is not what this passage is talking about. It's saying that whenever we present ourselves before Jesus with genuine faith, we will be the ones receiving praise, glory, and honor. Genuine faith in the eyes of God 
is like that million dollar grand slam. All of the angels are watching for genuine faith. All of the saints in heaven are looking for genuine faith. And even Jesus Christ is eagerly watching and waiting for your faith to mature and be genuine. The great trials we endure produce genuine faith. The more genuine our faith, the more praise we will receive. The more genuine our faith, the more glory and honor we will receive. Honor, glory, and praise from God. These are the goals, or these are the purpose of our heavenly birth and our exile here on earth. So what do we do in the meantime between our heavenly birth and receiving that honor, glory, and praise? Well, we're called to grow our faith, to make it genuine. And we do that by continuing to press into our salvation through holiness, because salvation flows from holiness. Take a look at verses 13 to 21. In this section, Peter quotes a command from Leviticus. He says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We like the idea of salvation by grace alone. And we like justification by faith alone. But whenever we see the command, You shall be holy, for I am holy, we don't like it as much. We want to have both worlds. We want to be eating pumpkin pie all winter and having a six-pack at the beach during the summer. You can't have both. This is telling us, yes, you are saved by grace, and yes, you are justified by faith. But to have genuine faith, you must be holy. Why did God give us this new life? To set us free from death? Yes, of course. To set us free from the devil? Yes. To set us free from sin? Yes. He's given us this birth as a freedom from sin, which means we must live lives of holiness. If you really want to enjoy your election as God's choice possession, you must be holy, which will also make you an exile on this earth, an elect exile. And this passage gives us three things that we can specifically do to endure our time as exiles. The first thing is that it tells us we must have holy minds. We must prepare our minds for war. Uh, in the Greek, what, what's actually going on is it says you have to, to gird up your minds as if they were your loins and you're going into battle. You have to prepare for a fight. The mind can be your greatest asset or your greatest liability. A soldier who is strong and has great strength is very desirable in battle. But if that soldier is drunk hungover, or just chasing butterflies off in a field, he's useless. But if that same soldier has a sharp mind, a fresh mind, he's going to be a great asset. As Christians, we must have a focused mind, and specifically focused on holiness. A Christian with a mind drunk on alcohol, entertainment, the pursuit of money, and even the pursuit of pleasure is completely useless. Yeah, you might still have your get-out-of-hell-free card, but you don't really understand the purpose of your salvation. God calls us to live a new life, and he calls us to protect our minds. He wants our minds completely dedicated to the general's orders. This general is not a dictator or a tyrant. 
He's a sinless general. And he's called us into his army of holiness. So the first thing this passage does is tell us to protect our minds for holiness. The second thing it tells us to do is to be obedient children. God is our father, and we are his children. And he wants us to behave in a certain way. He's not doing this to be a big, mean father. No, he's doing, us, doing this because he wants us to truly be humans. Imagine a music teacher that let his or her students play the violin any way they wanted to do without learning how to read music or learning the theories of music. That person would never become a great musician. But the teacher who forces the students to learn the methods of music, the theories of music, how to read notes, well, that student has the potential to become a musician. And that is what our Father is doing. He's calling us to holiness, not to punish us, but so that we can become what we are, children of God. And that only comes through holiness. So he's calling us to protect our minds. He's calling us to act like obedient children. But then the third thing he's telling us to do is rather strange. Take a look at verse 17. He says that we are to conduct ourselves in fear. Now, of all the things in this passage, this one caused me the most uh, trouble this week. I spent the most time thinking about it because in Scripture, sometimes the word fear could be translated as reverence or respect, but not in this passage. That would make it a lot easier. In this passage, it's that good old-fashioned fear, being afraid of something. Now, this, <clears throat> this, this made me think, how, how can I genuinely conduct myself in fear after I have this great salvation? Well, if you read closely, this passage tells us that God is our Father, but he's not only our Father. He is a judge. It's another aspect of God that we tend to forget. Yes, he's our loving Father, but he's also a serious judge that is holy. And verse 18 says that this holy judge has ransomed you. Ransom is another plank on the ark of salvation. It means to buy back, and we have been bought with a great price. And the greater the price tag on an object, the greater the owner has, or the greater the affection the owner has for that object, and the greater the value of that object. But there's also a greater responsibility and a greater purpose. So what was that price that ransomed us, that bought us? Well, this passage tells us that it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which brings us back to the gospel, but not exactly to the cross of Calvary. It takes us further back than that. If you look at verse 20, it says that Jesus Christ was foreknown before the creation of the world. It's another one of those salvation terms we saw in verse 2. This idea of Christ being foreknown, it means that Christ was chosen before creation. It means that Christ was elect to redeem the world. But it also means that he was chosen to be in exile because the only way he could redeem the world was by his blood. He was in exile because he came to his creation And his creation treated him like a foreigner. His creation nailed him to a tree. His climax of suffering and humiliation. But he was not to remain on the tree and he was not to remain in the tomb. Because he was elect and chosen for glory. He was resurrected by the power of the spirit. The same spirit that lives in us. 
And he ascended into glory and power as a king and as a priest. And as a priest, he uses that blood that was shed to sprinkle over his people, to make them holy as he is holy, and to make them exiles as he is an exile. Like Christ, we are elect exiles, and we press into his salvation through the gospel, through our adoption, and through the pursuit of holiness. We place our hope in him both now and in the future, when we will be receiving be receiving praise, honor, and glory. No longer will we be foreigners and exiles. We will be citizens. No longer will we be strangers, but we will be pure gold, more glorious than any artwork in a museum and more glorious than any spectacle in a sports stadium. One day we will enter the stadium of heaven to the sound of praise, glory, and honor. But we will not be filled with pride, for we will fully realize that our faith and good works came not from us, but from God, and through the sufferings and glory of Jesus Christ. But neither will we be too timid and shy to enjoy that praise and glory, for we have a royal inheritance waiting for us that angels long to marvel at. But I do suspect that in this great stadium, the song of praise will eventually fade to silence not because the celebration will have ceased, but because we will finally see the one we love face to face, the true citizen of heaven, that excellent choice whose praise we long for even though we don't hear it, the one that we love even though we don't see him. And when our faith is genuinely perfected, we will hear the words from him say, welcome home from your exile. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the great salvation that you have given us through the humiliation and the glories of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to press into our salvation through your grace. Help us to live in faith and help us to pursue holiness through the power of your spirit. We pray you bless us in the name of Christ. Amen.